All right. So my mom is the total matriarch of our family. She's kind of like the supreme, if you will. So we all love and respect her, but it's very easy for us to find some sort of way to kind of blame her for (laughs) for basically everything. In fact, uh, recently we were at brunch and we were continually talking about the weird genes that she's passed down. You know, we're talking about like epilepsy being in the family, a handful of us boys being colorblind, curly, frizzy hair that we all (laughs) straighten. Don't get me wrong, very proud of a lot of the genes that my mom, we're fortunate that she has passed to us. But honestly, there's an inherent relationship between genes and behaviors we pass down and what some people might actually call fate kind of what is what is fate what you know kind of nature versus nurture but this a lot of times this fate can be a bit of a slow burn and constantly littered with you know foreshadowing clues signs and a lot of stuff that you can really only notice in hindsight so thank you ariaster for your insanely intricate mind to bring us here today so grab your piano wires strap in for 2018's hereditary Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Pablo. And welcome to Scared Gay. A horror movie podcast with a gay agenda. And today, we're talking about Hereditary. Yes, Hereditary, which we have to talk about the voting because we forgot to talk about it last time. (laughs) So we put up on our Instagram a vote. You recommend a movie, we put it up, and then people vote on it, right? And so our number one voted film was A Nightmare on Elm Street, which we already put out. Our number two voted film was Hereditary, and (laughs) our number third is going to come out later. You'll see. So for everyone who voted, who chimed in, who made a suggestion, thank you so, so much. We do listen to what you say, and um, we are for the people. That is what this podcast is for the people. As long as you're queer. For the people, by the people, for the by people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, yeah. So thank you, listeners, for voting for Hereditary. Now, Hereditary, obviously, as we know, is an Ari Aster film. And last time we did an Ari Aster film, 2019's Midsummer, we had a wonderful, wonderful guest, a dear, dear friend of ours. Alex Perry. And we are so lucky that now that he is off of paternity leave, he is back joining us. Alex, welcome back to Scared Gay. Hi. Gentlemen, it's so good to be back. Uh, Thank you. I'm very excited. I remember a long time ago when we were first talking about this, at some point you had mentioned that, I mean, I don't mean to jump the gun and spoiler alert, but this is like one of your favorite movies ever. Yeah. So- We'll talk about when I saw it, but yes, it is one of my favorites. It is brutal. It's terrifying. It's a slow burn. It's got insane performances by all the cast. I mean, what more do you want? Funny enough, I think it was you who nominated this film. And then everyone (laughs) voted for it. Yeah. If you want to abuse our rigged voting system. Yeah. We don't recall elections. <laughs> our vote, our, our our vote is rigged. Hosted by Carrie Lake and Donald Trump. 
right? I mean, like, update us. Since Raising baby, uh, working, back at work now. Uh, we're actually, it's funny because uh, the last time we did this, not only were we also talking about an Ari Aster film, but I was in the process of moving, which I am again. So, oh my God. <laughs> you, I'm taking a break from packing this morning to join you, which is a lovely reprieve. So, oh, uh, Alex, oh. Alex, will you please tell him the scary stat that you told me earlier this morning about your moves? About my moves. Uh, so my wife and I, we've been together for 10 years now, and we were doing the math, and this most recent one will be our ninth move. Wow. Yeah. I'm not proud of it. Um, <laughs> to note, we've never been evicted. And... Oh, I was going to say, pay your rent. <laughs> no. <laughs> Girl, how many, how many places have you just abandoned? <laughs> There are a few cities we don't go back to, but you know, we make our way. Uh, no, it's just, it was just the way things landed, you know, between the pandemic, between switching jobs and moving to Seattle from San Francisco and now to our next destination. Uh, life is crazy, man. Wait, please tell God, me your next destination is back to San Francisco or at least I America. would love for it to be. Uh, we are actually going to be uh, moving to Las Vegas. Uh, we're going to be closer to of the desert. <laughs> yeah, we, we we need a stronger uh, family network right now, and uh, her, my wife's family's from there, and we're going to go back there for a little bit and raise a baby for a bit and then uh, see where life takes us. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I do want to say, every time I see you now, like which is probably going to be virtually, I'm really sorry that we did not get to hang out. I swear to God, I, got, I was like about to go to the hospital. <laughs> No, it's I've totally fine. Died. <laughs> Nothing is worse than traveling and food poisoning. Well, uh, I, I have a I have a nut allergy and I had something with peanuts and I didn't know it, so I was like out for like a weekend. Thank God it wasn't D's nuts or oh, oh. <laughs> awesome. You you and Charlie have that in common. Oh God. <laughs> I do want to spoil one of my jokes that I read, wrote down just because I need to not forget it. When we see the poll that eventually happens, I refer to it as Chekhov's poll. Ah! And then the next scene, you see them chopping up all the like walnuts. And I was like, I literally unironically typed out Chekhov's nuts. And I was like, um <laughs> God. But I'm 13 years old. <laughs> all right. Listeners, thank you for your wonderful reviews. As always, if you leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, Pablo will delight us with a wonderful reading. So now I'm going to turn it over. Pablo. Yes. <clears throat> By Berto Bob, or Berto Bob. Give me, give me more. Five stars. I'm a new listener, but an instant fan. Introduced to the pod via Michael Verratti episode. Paul and Pablo are hilarious together, especially when they pair up with the horror daddies. Scared Gay is a fantastic horror pod that is super gay and incredibly fun. I could not agree more. Thank you so much, uh, Berto, Berto Bob. Berto Bob. Yeah, but Berto Bert, Bert O Bob, maybe? Bert, Berto Bob. <laughs> or Berto Bob. <laughs> is he Irish? <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you. If you, uh, we really, really appreciate the reviews and really appreciate your kind words. Thank you. And we do love the horror daddies as well. They're fucking. Mwah. All right, let's move on. How was your life a horror movie this week? Alex, would you like to go? 
Oh, sure. You know, I, I was trying to not reach too far on this one, and I hate to 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 use the film that we're about to talk about it, but it's felt a little bit like hereditary. Uh, so we're in the process of this move. <laughs> and this past week, my mother was in town for the past two weeks to help us out and, you know, get organized. And during that time, my mother, much like me is a, uh, a social butterfly and, and loves to talk. And of course with family, when you haven't seen each other in a while, you start talking about family stuff, you know, old histories, generational things. And there were a few conversations. We unearthed some trauma from her marriage with my father and even talking about his upbringing and his family coming to this country as immigrants and how they really sort of encapsulated themselves in time and really isolated themselves as a family unit. And so he had this very sort of, not warped, but different view of, family than she did. And I don't know, it was just kind of one of those weeks where it's a lot of deep conversations with mom mm -hmm. late at night. And you're just like, oh, man, this explains a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I did think of one other film that it felt like, but I'll only talk about it briefly is because, well, never mind. We can cut that part out. <laughs> no, no, say it. What film? Well, we went out for dinner last night uh, to celebrate my birthday on Monday, and we had Indian food. And if any film I can think of, it follows. Because man, I woke up this morning with just fire gut. Gross! Gross! <laughs> gross! That is so gross. Well, good for you. Shut this up. is why. This is why you said you could never be a bottom. <laughs> <laughs> the curse of an angry butthole, right? Oh. Amen. The revenge of the whole <laughs> Paul, what about you? I didn't spend a lot of time trying to find, like, I don't know if there's a cat version of Cujo, but then I also felt like I'm going to unbiasedly say the most beautiful cat ever, mm. sweetest little guy ever. But Cujo, giving me a little Cujo vibes, but not as out there. So I actually, it's a little bit of a lateral step. You know, in South Park, the all our listeners, if you don't, no, it's this little bit in in the South Park TV show where there's all these cute little animated uh, like woodland critters. So like a squirrel, a bear, and they all have these like high pitched voice. They all look really sweet, but it turns out that they're all like devil worshippers. That's effectively my cat because he's so sweet. He's so nice. But I walked into the bathroom the other day and he was fucking taking a shit and staring at He's taking his shit on the bath mat and staring at me with just this look of, isn't this sweet? Full on making contact with me, eye contact with me while he was doing it. And now I have to buy a new bath mat because he was basically having a blood orgy of poop on, <laughs> on this bath mat. So he's um, the cats from Sleepwalkers, the cat creatures, the evil cat creatures from Sleepwalkers. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Awesome. Well, I mean, he's just copying you. He's probably like, look, we do this here at the same time. It's me and you in this together. Oh, that explains why my douche was uh, sitting right next to the... <laughs> it's getting ready to go on a high, you know, hot scruff date. <laughs> Pablo, how about you? Um. Oh, yeah. So I am the... Uh, in a way, I'm like the mother in Babadook. Um, I haven't had a day off since. I am your mother. Yeah, I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted. I haven't had a day off since the beginning of January. 
Um, just a lot of work stuff. I'm starting to feel a little run down. Like I, I, I don't have a lot of time to spend with Chris. There isn't like a lot to do. I'm just like, oh God. Oh God, I'm like starting to run on fumes, but like the end is near. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Just three, I have one weekend off in two weeks and then two weeks more and then I'm free. Free again. If I had a child who was a seven-year-old kid mourning his father's death, I'd probably be really terrifying to that kid right now. (laughs) All right. So now speaking of kids... I don't know. That's not really, I couldn't come up with a good segue for that one. The movie? Moving on. I love the, the movie. movie. <laughs> so, uh, Alex, tell us, when did you first see Hereditary? So I, I first saw Hereditary actually shortly after I saw Midsummer because I had not, I had wanted to see it, but I had never, I had never gotten a chance. And then my friend and I went and saw Midsummer, and I was blown away. So I went back home and like found it on, whatever streaming thing I had. So, you know, when you're a 13 year old kid and you're just sitting in your parents' basement in the dark by yourself, watching a movie for the first time, and you're just like totally engrossed in it. That was me. Like if you had creaked a door, I would have been like, ah! <laughs> I, I was totally into it. So yeah, it, it, it's one of those ones that gets you. 100%. I couldn't agree more. I saw it in theaters. I saw, I think the weekend, or the weekend after, like it came out, I saw like pretty soon after it came out in theaters. It was great. It was a it was an interesting ride of a movie for cinema because I think up until this point, horror was really shaped a specific way, and this one wasn't that. There yeah. was a lot of like it was actually kind of fun. A lot of jump scares in it, and a lot of like surprising visuals that come at you were really great with a lot of people. Um, I loved it. I had the best time. I thought it was one of the smartest horror films I had seen up to that point. It's just a great film. Like I, I, Agreed. I really loved it. And I love Tony Collette. I just remember being like, she is a goddess. <sighs> she's so, she's a maniac in this film. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's so good. Paul, what about you? So I saw it. Honestly, only like a couple of years ago, I'd seen Midsummer before, and I kind of had the same experience that I did with Midsummer. The first time I watched it, I wasn't like a super big fan. I definitely, I was creeped out by the movie, but I think I just wasn't really watching the movie the first time I watched it. It was during COVID, and I just streamed it at home. And I think I maybe watched it during the day and just wasn't really in the right like zone to watch this movie i wasn't which was kind of a disservice to myself to not put myself in like really the right atmosphere this is a movie you really need to be watching with all the lights off or in a theater like to really get the full experience of it because also there's just a lot of subtle things that you're gonna you're gonna miss and it kind of takes the scariness out of it and i'm enough of a degenerate now to where it's kind of hard to scare me but each time i watch this I like it more and more. So like I had the most fun actually this last time on a rewatch, even though I was having to stop here and there to take notes. Uh, But I think that this is also a credit to Ari Aster is that he's adds all of these layers where there's always new stuff to find in both of his movies. And interestingly enough, I, I, Midsummer is one of my favorite movies ever. And I think this is the stepping stone to that 
and he's much more subtle in this as far as laying out what happens than he is in Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I'd agree with that. The details, like I think on a on the second viewing for me, or the, even the third viewing, seeing little details that not only add to, you know, piecing together the the you know the the side or the backstories that that have kind of been happening, but then you also share in those aha moments, which are really terrifying. And you're like, Oh my God, the details start being shed. And you're like, this is fucking creepy. Well, cause the, the movie is, it starts off like a traditional ghost story. So you kind of think, you know, what's happening, but then it turns into a mystery where you're like trying to figure out what the fuck really is going on. Why do these people keep waving at this little girl? Why do these people keep screaming? Who are these people? What the fuck is really happening? Exactly. Why is this here? So I, it, it makes it really interesting. And then one of the things that I always really enjoyed, he doesn't assume the audience is stupid. Actually, he, he's like, I'm just going to lay it out there. And like, you may not get it right away, but it's all like in, in watching it, the, like the second or third time you're like, he tells you exactly what's going to happen in like the classroom scene. You're like, Oh, this is Okay. And then every little detail, every you're right, it's all about the details. Every little thing, every line that someone says, every shot, everything is explaining something and giving you history that we didn't know yes. we actually needed. And I that, yes. that's why this film yes. I think is is holds so much like such a special place in my heart. It's such a smart, entertaining film. Well, I mean, there's just so much detail. I mean, I think maybe it was on Midsummer. I, I think I referred to Ari Aster as the Taylor Swift of <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, of horror filmmakers. But like before the, he even wrote the screenplay, what he did was he actually wrote full on backstories for each yeah. one of the characters before developing yeah. the screenplay. So that just goes to show the level of detail. In fact, uh, Tor- Tony, Tori, Tony Collette has gone on record saying he is the most prepared director that she's ever worked with. And you can feel that mm-hmm. in their characters, like that, that level of understanding, not only of their history together and as individuals, but like that, that generational trauma that has been passed down, you know, cause they, like she has, Tony Collette has so many great monologues in this film and the exposition that she gives is so visceral, but at the same time, like vague, you know, but you catch it. And then like you pick up other pieces later and you're like, oh my God, that's exactly what she was talking about. Now it makes so much sense. Yeah. I love that. Everything seems, and like, I always know, like, especially in movies, it's about choices. Every choice is very deliberate, but in this one, every choice seems so thought out, deliberate and purposeful to the story, not necessarily for like audience reaction or for anything other than putting you in, in this disjointed narrative that's happening mm-hmm. to this family, right? The narrative isn't disjointed, yeah. but the family is. And everything from the trees to the setting in Utah to like the vastness of everything, right? And it kind of mirrors the fate of the family. And I, that to me, I'm like, this is fucking great. In a lot of ways, while there's so much detail, he takes a lot of a less is more approach. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of scenes and I'll get through them. Well, as we approach these scenes, I can actually talk about what the screenplay originally had and the stuff that he cut out. Originally, this film was over 
easily over three hours long. And a lot of what they cut was family dialogue. And while it's typically you would think that, you know, that should be necessary to move the story along. He found ways to kind of shortcut that and actually leave a little bit more ambiguity and to leave, again, just kind of going back to that, that less is more. And it just, it, it works so well. This movie, while it is, it's a fairly long movie. It, it, I would say it breezes by pretty fast. Yeah. It breezes by really fast. The former therapist in me comes out and is like, oh my God, <laughs> they set up how family dynamics truly look in dysfunctional families. We think it's like, you know, this fucking like crazy, like, like very extreme, but it's not what we think. Like the dysfunction actually is masked by people just trying their best and it constantly failing. I wondered, Pablo, if this was going to be like, I wrote something down. I was like, is this going to be like, like therapist porn for Pablo? (laughs) Because it's so rich. Well, a lot of my like cohort. It's so real. Yeah. A a lot of the people that I went to grad school with who, you know, have seen them. We we, will talk about movies and they're all like, that they still practice therapy. I, I left the career, but they're all, they all say like, this is a great film to watch. Cause this is how a lot of this dysfunction just kind of manifests for everyone. Right. You, and I will say, I do love the, the um, Gabriel Burns character, Steve Graham, that he's a psychiatrist. There's something really interesting about that. With that, let's get into the, Meat and potatoes of the film. All right. It is written and directed by Ari Aster. This is his directorial debut. And it was A24's highest grossing film up to that point. So good job, Ari. It wow. was, Wasn't this their fourth film? They've had a few. They had like, um, did they do Florida up to this point? They did like comedy yeah. stuff. They, they did that one with. Daniel Radcliffe, I think that was like their first film. Oh yeah, and they did Enemy. They did, I highly recommend Enemy. They did the bling. They did the bling ring. Yes. Um. They did Spring Breakers. They did oh, yeah. the Spectacular. Now A twenty four has such an aesthetic, even across all of these different films that they've done. Like even between like X and Pearl, like there, there's something about an A twenty four film where all these directors have their own obviously cinematographers of course they share uh crews and everything but they like almost like it's a i see it as like the most it's an edge the most millennial um (laughs) honestly like the most woke yeah it well like girls well like kind of like girls like that kind of dark like from this from, movie in particular from the aesthetic to like what as like as millennials like our aesthetic mm-hmm. our topics how like how we like to talk about things and we are aging but we still like our shit very we're elder millennials thank you okay Let's, to me I, um i'm a middle millennial to me, like <laughs> that explains a lot. when i was yeah when i was when I watch an A24 film, the only thing I think of is this is directed and written by someone in a production company created by people who were obsessed with the Criterion collection. Like, <laughs> it's, right? Like they came of age into movies. This is the, this is oh the 80s club in high school manifesting. Yes. They all, they all got together and they started A24. 
Exactly. Well, you know, you want to know what it is? What it is? It's because this was all happening during the fucking recession that the fucking boomers put us through. So this is just an example of millennials have to be scrappier and do more with less. And so damn right, millennials, millennials were the ones <laughs> were, were the ones that birthed the hipster movement. So we're very much like this is also has a lot of like hipster like talk to it. You know, like the the music is very important. And like everything is like I don't know. It's just it's very millennial to me in the best way. Like you know, I I, I love a twenty four. Um, All it needed was a soundtrack by like something corporate or Blink One Eighty Two. No, all it needed was a sound. No, they say it really well in Jennifer's Body. Like you can't get on the soundtrack unless you know, like you're like an indie band that's like like has to be in a cool movie. Like that's what this is. Um, all right. It was released January 21st, 2018 at Sundance. And I had a friend who went to Sundance, watched it, and was, like, hyping it up for me for a while. Uh, and then June 8th, 2018, it was finally released uh, in the U.S. of A. It was filmed on a $10 million budget and grossed $85.2 million. I almost said trillion. <laughs> That would have been wild. It stars the one and only Muriel herself. Just kidding. Tony Collette as Annie Graham. Gabriel Byrne as Steve Graham. Alex Wolfe as Peter Graham. Millie Shapiro as Charlie Graham. The incomparable Anne Dowd as Joan. And the one that everyone wants to talk about. Just kidding. Mallory Betchel as Bridget. You're like, who's Bridget? That's the that's the girl that Alex is into. <laughs> But this is a great, it's a great cast. I'm surprised that they got both Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette and did as a lot of the effects that they do. It's pretty much all practical effects with the exception of very little. So I'm surprised that they did all of this with this budget being like Tony Collette, even in, you know, in 2018 was a big get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like huge, huge get. And Gabriel Byrne. He he's not going to come with like uh, you know a small price tag. I, I, Millie Shapiro uh, and Alex Wolf, obviously, kind of more up and coming. Millie Shapiro, she was actually on Broadway. She's a Broadway she, star, right? Yeah, she was in Matilda. Yeah, she has the. Has she done? I thought it was really fascinating. She has, and that's why I was like, everything is such a deliberate choice. She has the same genetic um, condition that the boy from Stranger Things has. And her mom and her uh, sister have it as well. And it's and he's also a Broadway. Yeah, he's also a Broadway yeah, he's also yeah. yeah. But it was really he's interesting Broadway to cast too. someone who already inherited a genetic condition that is very obvious. Ooh. I see what you did there. That's why I I knew you were like uh, I love when you do this. You pull you like yeah, that's so good. <laughs> I never would have thought that. Yeah. And that's so spot on, right? And 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 I I. I think it was like a deliberate choice, right? Like, and the, the condition, I I forgot what it's called. It doesn't really do much in the sense that it has no cognitive issues. It's just like, you know, like some face structure, how teeth grow and like some sinus issues. Um, But it's, it's pretty noticeable. Right. So that was really interesting. Has she done much since this? She did like a short film. She was on Dragula, which I thought was amazing. I always want to call her Millie Bobby Brown Shapiro. I I have to keep not doing that. 
Billy, Bobby Brown, Ben Shapiro. Millie, <laughs> you know, Millie Bobby Brown. She's a girl from Stranger Things. Billy, Billy, Bob, Billy, Billy, Bob, Bob, Brown, Shapiro. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God, this I'm, yeah, I'm looking to see. She hasn't done, she hasn't done anything. She no. was in, yeah, the, in Dragula. So and then, yeah, JJ just, Dillard's but is, is she doing more plays? She's also like young. Her last her last theater credit was in 2016 for your yeah. Charlie Brown. Oh, well, I mean, who knows? Maybe she decided to get out of it. Because when you make a movie that essentially you're the face of Hereditary, it's either a curse or a blessing, right? Because now, especially because she's so unique looking, that you, I'm sure a lot of people are like, we would love to cast you, but all we would see is the pole, right? Like that's all. People all we see is Hereditary. <laughs> Well, she didn't see the poll. She well, her brother did. It. She did. Her brother did it. Um, she should have gotten ahead of that decision. Oh damn! <laughs> you know, in high school, I would have been the guy making the joke. Like, damn, did you hear? Her sister gave him head, <laughs> but he left it behind. I know. I and when I give head, that's not how I do no. it. <laughs> that's how. There's a lot of jokes where that came from. Oh, gross. Anyway, I'm going to move on and talk about something serious. God, Paul, disgusting. It, we, ew, we're in the, pre- ew, we're in the presence of a gentleman, finally, for once, again. No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but this film... I'm a degenerate, just like yeah, this. This is a basket full of liberal deplorables. God, <laughs> That's kind, right? What this film... This film was really interesting because... If you really think about the idea of like millennium horror, millennial horror, aka elevated horror, it's really this film that this film is the Halloween to that for ended to elevated horror, what Halloween did for the slasher, right? Like it created the formula then and there, and that was it. And so, um, a little bit about A24. It was founded in 2012 and it was intended to be an independent film studio that really wanted to give the artist's artistic freedom. And so, you know, when you look at an A24 film, a lot of them are pretty highbrow. And even like the filming style, like Tangerine was filmed on an iPhone. And like, it really tells these really interesting stories by people who maybe wouldn't have a voice, but are are able to have their artistic liberties, I, I guess you can say. And so what's happening around this time is 20... The 2000s horror kind of died off a little bit. Like, we loved it, but it was, like, really informed by torture porn. There was a few things that were popping up here and there, like paranormal activity, which was kind of interesting and different, as they say on um, Kath and Kim. It's nice. It's different. It's unusual. Um, So you had a little bit of that. Then you started to get um, a resurgence in horror that was a bit of a throwback to like early seventies and how things are filmed and a little bit of an aesthetic with like a lot of James Wan films, like the conjuring. Right. And then a 24, and that was just starting to give horror. Like people started to notice horror again and kind of look at it and like take it in. But horror has always been like subjugated to, you know, the fringes of entertainment. Um, Bloomhouse came along and really was the one that started to, to give horror a voice, but a lot of the horror is very formulaic with Bloomhouse. It's not bad. Like I, I, I think it's great. It's meant to be entertaining and fun, not so much thought provoking. A twenty four 
giving their artists freedom then allowed their artists allowed like Ari Aster, who was doing short films at the time to tell a very different type of horror story. And so it tapped into, as everything was building in like millennials who are starting to shape horror and like it, um, it really tapped into our millennial zeitgeist. You know, we are, we're also the most socially aware. We're also the ones who grew up with therapy and therapy speak and examining family dynamics. We are the ones who really in our everyday lives use the term generational trauma, right? Like <laughs> my parents are not fucking talking about generational trauma, even in a different language. Like no one's really talking about that stuff as much as millennials. And so it really then took horror, elevated it, made it a really beautiful artistic expression. And from there came the elevated horror genre. And it's really this film that kind of birthed it. Then we started having things like Midsommar and um, a bunch of A24 films, essentially. I was going to say, like, all the A24 <laughs> yeah, But, like, now. Get Out and, <laughs> and stuff like that, really. I, I, I think a movie like Get Out that isn't A24 really owes a lot to movies like this. Because it shows that people can look at horror and tell a very relevant story that may not be, you know, like up until this point, it was like, well, you know, it was a blank audience, a blanket audience and horror blanket audiences were generally like straight white guys. And then a movie like Nope, uh, or sorry, Get Out comes out because movies like um, Hereditary kind of paved the way to help open up just a little bit, just kind of around that time, a little bit to say like, you know, you can also speak to the black experience and we as white people, we as non-black people are going to all, we can also enjoy it and know that that's your experience and we can respect it and acknowledge it as your experience. And this is what I, I think one of the strengths of a 24 and how it kind of shaped horror from here on out. Yeah. It's very gate gateway horror. Exactly. You know, entry entryway horror. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you guys watch Men, by the way? That was No, I haven't seen very it. Very wild seen it and like what the fuck is going on? I highly recommend it if you haven't. It's been on my to-do list. Men I love Men are on your to-do list. So. Of course. Typical Paul. <laughs> so never think it's the only one that wrong. doesn't get off the list. <laughs> I know, right? Constantly gets bumped up. No, 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 no. Men are getting off on this list. <laughs> oh! Let me tell you. Let me tell you. <laughs> but I'm bing. I am not a selfish lover. I'm just kidding. I'm a very greedy. Oh yeah, lover. no. I heard. You, I heard you were a bossy bottom. <laughs> I'm actually. Yeah. Well, I'm just bossy in real life. Yeah. <laughs> not. In, yeah. Never mind. Uh, hi, Donna. My sister is listening to this right now. <laughs> a picky bottom, if you will. A pick me bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking, because uh, actually, we the three of us were texting about something, bottoming came up, and then I was sitting there thinking about, like, bottoms, and then how people call it the passive, uh, like, like being bottom, is like being the passive no. one. And I'm like, the only kind of passive bottoms are is aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> the ones that are like, oh, who are you texting? Who are you texting? Well, oh. here's the thing. <laughs> bottoming takes so much preparation and work like and then uh, you kind of essentially where's the thanks yeah you kind of essentially have to preparation preparation or prayer <laughs> like one of those <laughs> i'm a gambling man and you know what there's nothing more fun than losing well that's why we talk about scat all the time, <laughs> this mm-hmm. all the time. Well, the, the, did you guys get some scat 
You have the pen. You're, you're holding a pen you're holding right now. The faculty scat pen. I was. Li- that was I planned. Was li- that was planned. <laughs> I was literally listening to the faculty yesterday, driving in the car, going, "It was called fucking scat. I forgot about that." <laughs> it was. Your little poet. It was called scat. You forgot about that. Uh. <laughs> what were we talking about? Well, Bottoms, let's talk right. into... Okay, no, no, no. What we're actually talking about is some of the production stuff. I just want to throw out some fun production facts. So, first off, I think a lot of people know this. Toni Collette was kind of done with more serious films. Uh, she wanted to pretty much do straightforward or, like, more comedies. Now, she's read the script and was like, all right, I'm in. This film originally, like Midsummer, is not written to be a horror movie. This movie, the original drafts, it's really is just focused on the family dynamic and family drama that they and add horror elements. So we see a lot of stuff about the genre there being genres and there being certain cliches that he throws into that he throws in and I'll talk about those as we go through. He does a lot of very subtle like horror cliches but just enough cuz Ari Aster has talked a lot about how he didn't want to make a horror film. He wanted to make a film that has a message mm-hmm. and then add the horror elements because then otherwise, if you make it a genre film, you get trapped in that genre. Like the the preparation that this guy, like Ari Aster has to be about him because can you imagine the amount of preparation he does? <laughs> that was a reach. Douches for days. <laughs> Another thing, there's a million fucking facts I could throw out. Yes, it was filmed on location in Utah, but a lot of this was done on a sound stage. So there's two parts to this. One, it was intended to kind of mirror this uh, this kind of dollhouse feel, but then also to mirror the the fact that you know she's a miniaturist. Another cool thing about that is the production company that that built this while they were, well, they were working closely with actual miniaturist artists. The production company was like, we'll just do this. And so they hired them on to actually be the ones. To, so who built the larger sets also built the miniature sets. That's so cool. So let's move on to the characters. Pablo, walk us through the characters. Yes. Let's start with essentially the protagonist of the film, Annie played by, Tony Collette. I always want to say Colette Peterson. Tony Collette. Uh, I found her very fascinating. She's actually a lot more like her mother than she wants to admit. Well, I think we're going to see that in throughout. I mean, the movie is called Hereditary. I think her son is also more like her than he wants to admit to. I think it's a lot of, and I talked about this during the Ready or Not episode where we talk about like younger people having to pay for the kind of the sins of their fathers and so on. And so I think that that is definitely a little bit of one of the 94 million themes that Ari Aster has thrown into this movie. Exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, when when talking about these characters, I think it's going to be a little bit challenging because the reality is, I think, rather than looking at the characters as individuals, which we do a lot, um, and I'm, of course, we're going to talk about them because it's important to talk about them. But I think what's more important is not who they are as individuals, is the relationship that they have with one another and the relationship that they have with what is what they're experiencing, right? So I think 
what I, what I personally would like to say about Annie is Annie is someone who a lot who essentially plays us really like if if we think about it Annie is us we want we all want to like break the cycles of that we were raised with we all want to stop those but we actually don't know how a lot of the times and it takes a lot of work to stop that there's a really beautiful like i I've, I've seen this drawing before where it's um a person holding their child and they have all these um knives and swords and stuff in their back and their kid is playing and they're you know they they're, they're shooting out like a rainbow to their child with all these knives in their back and people behind them and it's like you know all 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 of the the things that you experience can stop with you and you can change the narrative but and i think any tries to do that but because Annie only knows one way, one thing, she only knows her mom's way of living. Annie um, does it in a way that probably her mom would have done it as well, right? Like she still she's not breaking she's not breaking the cycle at, like, like she thinks she she does. She's adding distance between her and her family rather than actually breaking the cycles and and understanding what's what's really going what, on. What she's trying to do, what I, I totally agree with you. And I think like the way I interpret it is, is she's trying to kind of treat Charlie the way that she wanted to be treated and because she's getting not necessarily reciprocated from Charlie. She's being her mom to, to them to yeah. an extent. And it's, I, you know, I see this, you know, in, in my family, in a lot of ways, like we, it's not a bad thing. It's, you know, no. you, we, we look at, you know, be- behaviors of our parents that like, as children, we may be like, why the fuck did mom do this? And then as adults, we realize like, oh, okay, okay. Like, like this, not that it makes sense, but, the, but you can, you can have more understanding and you yeah. realize that we are way more like our parents genetically or not. Ge- genetics has nothing necessarily to, to do with it. We are our parents to an extent. Exactly. Um, There's definitely an empathy that comes out of that. You know, as you get older and you're like, why the fuck did my parents do these things? And then you see yourself doing them or thinking them. You're like, ah, and there it is. Well, one, one of the hardest things is getting older and realizing like, oh, my mom's a person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're actually I'm, people. <laughs> they have flaws. Who have, who have flaws and who have problems and who have done great things and fucked up things and you know they have a history well what it's one one of the things that's really interesting that a lot of um and like developmental and family psychology they talk about is you know a lot of times it's actually very natural for us as like late adolescents and in our 20s to blame our parents and because we now have the language to say when you did this, it made me feel this way and it shaped certain things and now certain things that I do. But it's not until, especially once we become a parent, that then we then realize it's not so black and white. My parents did the best that they could with what they had. And that's for a lot of people. And like, this is something, you know, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say like, you know, I'm an expert on being a parent because I'm, the, uh, you know. There's only one of us here that is a parent, and that's Alex. But in the, the I knew at that, so I know very little. Yeah, but in the <laughs> talking and the conversations that I'm having right now in the journey to become a parent, hopefully by the end of the year, um, 
we are, I'm re-examining a lot of like the things that I, the research that I had as education, they were saying like parenting is a really wonderful opportunity to reparent yourself, right? Like, and a lot of people actually say and report that they feel a stronger connection to their own parents once they're a parent. And then as well, then they feel like they can actually start healing a lot of the things because they start to under have more empathy for other people because empathy really does help, but also kind of get a better sense of what like context in which everything lived. Right. That doesn't excuse like abusive parenting or neglectful parenting, but it's just saying like, you know, family dynamics are not easy and there's no such thing as a perfect family. Every family has flaws and all of those flaws and all of those behaviors have consequences, sometimes good, sometimes neutral, sometimes bad. Right. And so they shape us for, for mm. what it's worth. Now I am going to, I agree with you 1000%, but I am going to make a critique on this film right now. And one thing I don't like is that, is that we are now also faced with, again, the crazy mother. I, I made a joke about it earlier being like my family jokes, you know, like, always blame everything on her mom but this really does come back okay it's another one it's the one it's the mom this is all her fault she's the crazy one but she's actually not really crazy no one's listening to her she's been surrounded by this you know ritual this culture her whole life unknowingly but it's all kind of made to blame her does yeah. that make sense i, I no, am i yeah. reading too much into that no 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 it, no. it makes sense and it begs yeah. the question what is it exactly that this family inherited yeah. You know? Well, I, this might, I think it's definitely the writing, but it's a lot of the way Tony Collette portrays her is the, that burden that, that, that whether it's real or, you know, uh, um, perceived burden falls on her. She, she takes that, but she also takes it with so much uh, shame. Like you hear it and how she talks about it and talks about her family history of mental illness and like the deaths that's, like she glosses over things in, in, in the way she talks about and throws that back on herself. And it's brutal. Oh yeah. Well, one of the things that I personally also, I, I actually picked, uh, I interpreted and it has probably to do with me being Hispanic is, um, is that like, I always thought it was really interesting to make it in Utah. And I know that it has to do with like the mountains and all that stuff, but also as a Hispanic person, when I think of Utah, I think like, white like very white culturally white american and a lot of white american values are shaped by wasp values which with yeah. that you hear a lot of you hold everything in you do not let anyone know what you're feeling mm -hmm. you deal with it on mm -hmm. your own and it's private your emotions are for yourself and yeah. so they all play it just like that right in a southern accent it is pronounced hush 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 okay hush, hush. <laughs> and you're, you're totally right but of course, it's Ari Aster. The other complaint I'm going to not complaint, but critique I'm going to make is Midsummer. Not a lot of diversity in that cast <laughs> either. So, I mean, I guess he is kind of writing what he knows. Yeah. But I actually don't know Ari Aster's like upbringing or anything like that uh, uh, at all. But yeah, no, I think this movie definitely, I mean, it fully speaks to. Like, I mean, I can only compare it to the white experience. You know, one of my former clients grew up with him. Get what? out. 
Okay. Yeah. We have a horror movie podcast, and I am learning on episode <laughs> fucking 40-something. 40-something. <laughs> what? Yeah, one of my former, um, like, personal training clients, like, grew up with Ari Aster, and they're still, like, in, they were, like, friends, and they're still in contact. And she says that he... Can we get him on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. She says that he was, like, pretty nice, and, like, she's she actually talked a lot more about, like, I think it was like his mom. <laughs> I take back all my critiques. Ari Aster, you're perfect. Come on, scared. You're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Very handsome. <laughs> right. And I, she said something about going to camp with him too. In Utah? Uh, no, I, I, if, I, I'm, I may be conflating this with someone else, but I think they went to like Jewish day camp or like Jewish summer camp. Yeah. Now let's talk about Steve. Let's talk about her husband, who to me, I actually found a, to be a really fascinating character. Um, yeah. He's an, he's actually an asshole. He's. I did not like him. Oh no. He, he's a few things happen, right? Like it's so funny that they make him a psychiatrist and like, I, I get it. I remember in grad school, I, you know, like I had done pre-med. So I, like, I have a, a, like a minor in biology and um, I was like, should I go to medical school and then be a psychiatrist or should I be a, a therapist or whatever? And I was talking to one of my professors and he was like, well, psychiatry is, you know, if you like talk therapy and you like all this stuff, psychiatry may not be the best. You just kind of have to like know things from a medical model and you're not actually going to look at, at family systems as much. Like none of that stuff is really important. And when I um, was going through my treatment for borderline, I remember like actually talking to my psychiatrist about this stuff. And my psychiatrist was like, well, I'm a psychiatrist. Like I'm not really here to treat personality disorders. I'm here to treat the chemicals, the functions that make up like all these other things, right? Like, you know, schizophrenia and all this stuff. Like that's for like a psychologist or a therapist. Like that's what you need to do there. So I, I always found that really fascinating. So when they choose them, I think they really look at specific things like, you would think he would have, you know, an ability to talk to his wife because he talk he is all about like the mental health aspect of it all. But the reality is he never he's not interested in anything that she has to say, doesn't even acknowledge anyone else's grief of this of her mom dying or his own child dying. He's just very like detached. He's 100%. so cold, yeah. So cold. He's, now like, what's interesting is Oh, sorry, Alex, I, I cut you off. Oh, I was going to say the only time in the whole movie that you see any like real warmth from him, I thought was like that brief moment when he checks in on Peter after his gra- after the grandmother's funeral. And he's like, hey, how you doing? And they both like share a laugh. And then he's like, all right, sayonara, kid. Yeah. And walks off. And like, it was touching, but it's like, that's the only time even. Ugh. Exactly. So a lot of it was cut. A lot of it was cut. I. Uh, <sighs> After the dinner scene, at the dinner scene, was, the dinner. he was yeah, supposed that's... to be much more involved and going back and forth. And he is actually originally pegged as the middleman. And that's what leads to his alcoholism. You you get subtle hints oh, at his alcoholism. He's yeah. actually written as a much more sympathetic character. I completely interpreted Steve a little bit differently. Mm. I actually, I don't think Steve is a bad guy. I don't think he's a bad guy. I actually think he's in the middle of everything. I think he's the last thread that's holding this family together. And I actually had a little bit more sympathy towards him for that reason. I oh, think he, he has to balance all of this. Also, wh- I find it disturbing and a little interesting that it's her mother 
and we'll talk about this when we get to the plot, but spoiler alert, the mother's grave is desecrated. Why don't they talk to Tony Collette? Why do they talk to him? To him. Yeah. It's a very- So he, I think he's the type of person who tries to take on a lot and like try to be there for people. I think the road to hell is paved with good intentions and ultimately ends up collapsing him. Yeah. They did cut like- uh, Alex Wolf said that this movie was supposed to be way longer, but they mainly cut family dialogue. And yeah. Fortunately for this character, that. like uh, this character s- feels a little half baked because there's, you know, I we're agree both with picking that. up on different sides of that. Well, I, that's very, that's very interesting to know because I kind of felt that the first time that one, he, I was like, get, get real burn. Like he's, he, he's in this. And then he has like, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. He's just kind of there in a lot of scenes, you know, I mean, he's doing a lot, but that makes a lot of sense. And I think now that I, now that I know that, like hit that coldness that I, that I, that I, it's probably because they just removed a lot of it, but it actually changes the character so much. Well, when I, you rewatch the dinner scene, you see it in <clears> his <throat> eyes going where he is, the middle person going back and forth. Yeah. It's just, it's not. And he does reach for, for Peter and holds his hand Absolutely. as Peter is yeah. like, but I actually, I interpreted him. Yes. I, I, I think he is cold, but I interpreted him every. So every family has someone who's invested in keeping the family dynamic. Yeah, That doesn't mean that they are bad it just means that this is all that they know. And I felt that he was the one who's invested in keeping the family dynamic. Now, what I mean by family dynamic That's what I meant. Is, yeah. the, is the person who's invested in maintaining no con. Like, we don't talk about our feelings. We don't deal with our stuff. He's the, the one who pushes the status for it. quo. Whenever, because her miniature making is her dealing with her issues and he shuts it down at all points. Like he doesn't treat it like that. He shuts it down when she is doing the, the poll. Um, like instead of being like, Oh my God, how are you doing? And my wife is losing it. Our child just died. He chastises her. And he's like, you're going to make our son feel bad. Like he's never really invested in her, no matter what dialogue it is in her speaking and letting it out. He doesn't even give her an opportunity. And when she does, he holds Peter's hand not hers and sees her doesn't see her as he sees her as like a woman morning after she like the night after you know but he doesn't well, give he, her a lot and so to me he's he's the family dynamic is you don't talk about anything you you keep as tony collette said about her mom she has private rituals private friends private everything she repeats the exact same thing and he she does holds it he upholds it uh, well, the, and then he also implemented the no contact rule the, when her mom was going exactly. crazy. Going back to Midsummer, I what's the what's the boyfriend's name? Alec uh, Christian. 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 Like Christian, he is trying to keep the. I don't want to. This is going to sound hard. Trying to keep the crazy away. Like I've never mind. I'm, well, no, but you know, it's another point I wanted to make. There was another point I wanted to make that was similar to this. No, no, no. I, I, on it. I like, I, I like what you're saying because ultimately women's behavior is the one that's deemed crazy, not son's behavior. Yeah. Right. So the well, grandma, she's crazy. Leave, leave her alone. Don't talk to her. Um, Tony, who's mourning her mom and daughter just died. She's crazy. 
she's too much. You're scaring our son. And it's, it's, it's nothing bad, but he's not giving. And Ari wrote this in two movies. The men are not giving women time to breathe and time yeah. to process. They just Difference. shut it down. Difference though between Steve and Christian is I actually do think Steve I do think Steve actually loves Tony Oh, Clark's yeah. Character. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's to to the point that was made before, he is in it. He is also grieving. He's also processing, but he's also one steering the boat. So he can only And he's on his on last thread too. Exactly. Yeah. And so he that, he Maybe needs therapy. Is, yeah, the coldness <laughs> is the wall that keeps him afloat. It's not a coldness of I don't care. It's a coldness of I'm keeping this this boat on course while yeah. while it burns down around me. But unfortunately, it yeah yeah it the course is what's like leading down to the sacrifice of the family. <laughs> you know, like he, he he's actually a really important piece in this. Without him, who knows what would happen? Right? Like yeah, for real. Um, but let, let's move on to to Peter, right? And I I like what you said, Alex. Like Peter really is a lot, or was it Paul? Like one of one of you said it, it's a that he's a lot more like his mom than he wants to admit. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's generational trauma to an extent. I mean, look at how often they. I mean, I you know don't mind yelling this. Like we're you know, loud people. My family we, we're we're yellers. Uh, this family is obviously as such, but like I couldn't find any written documentation of it. So this is just my interpretation. The way that Peter, when he's screaming and he's crying, I feel like he and Tony Collette worked on it together. There's mm-hmm. just something, there's yeah. something similar in the cadence of their voice, the intonation and the way in which like they had, like they had to have worked together on it. Even though Tony Clyde is supposed to be the outsider, you see a lot of her in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where Charlie clicks to suppress her own emotions, he smokes weed, Right. To kind of like they all have yeah that's habits. his that's his neutralizer exactly they all have habits to keep themselves from dealing with anything that they experience they don't want to deal with it and um and Tony's is making miniatures right and the dad is drinking so you know like what he has inherited from his family is faulty coping skills. And one of the things that I found so fascinating, so fascinating, and I was like, this is this shows parenting, right? Like the 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 inherited of something, inheritance of something. He has the worst manners to eat. And it was such it a, was so bad. It was such a choice. And it's like because ultimately the parents are so involved in hiding and regulating their own dysregulated emotions that they never could take p- time to teach him how to just have etiquette at the table, how to eat food. He's literally like grabbing stuff and I'm like, like he's, it's kind of jarring, you know? And yeah. also, also cleanliness. I've written down here. Why does Peter look so greasy? Yeah. Like literally cleaning, like we're cleaning, 
drain hair out of a t- out of your yeah. sink is what he looks like the whole and he gets progressively i'm sure it's a choice like kids are I kids would, are gross anyway but he just gets pro- disgusting but he looks like enough to be like an oil refinery like it's like it's gross yeah on. i mean he's he's ignoring himself after the tragedy you know, yeah, he, he's, but it's before the tragedy too. When you see him awkwardly walk up to the girl, he still looks. I mean, that's being a teenager. Hey, everyone's but he got just that looks, one friend in the group yeah, who just doesn't well, bathe. You know, he kind of looks like that in, in in general. But you're you're right. He's a little bit, but it gets progressively worse um, because this is a family that neglects themselves emotionally, right? You never see a shower, and that's. Not That's once. the only horror movie, horror movie I think we've covered in a long time that doesn't have a shower scene. <laughs> Wait, that's the thing. Wait. Most horror movies have a shower scene. Yeah, because most horror movies sexualize a woman's body, and that's the best way. Well, the last one was The Faculty, where I was sexualizing Stan. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything else you guys want to say about Peter? Peter? We'll, no. we'll cover it as we go okay. along. What about yeah. Charlie? Oh, Charlie. Uh, Are Drew Barrymore of it all? (laughs) Yeah. She is. (laughs) Exactly. So I actually, I'm very interested about this character to see like Ari Aster's notes about her because the way she's portrayed, something's off, obviously. Socially developmentally. Well, she's she's possessed. It's never, it's never, it's never like it's never given a name. It's never put in something. So it just, it, it just exists, you know? And I love that, that we know something is slightly off about this child and not saying right or wrong or anything, but it's, it's, and the, the way they, they kind of handle her. Does, does it have nuts in it? Does she have nuts? Where's the EpiPen? You know, there's this kind of like hurry and scurry around Charlie to make sure that she is safe and contained. And, and like, is she diagnosed with something? Because they're like, that's an open question. Cause she's like, yeah. who's going to take care of me? But she's an, ar- she's an artist. She seems to be, she's not, I paid attention, paid attention to the class that she's in. It does not seem to be a quote unquote, no. special know, class, like, no. like you, a special education you, class. Yeah. Like, and she's how much of this is maybe a- forced on her by her parents. Yeah. Of like, Well, I actually think, the sister, I the sister. I think her mom knows exactly what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. I think she does. There's a line in the movie where we are at Peter's school. The first time we see like Peter in his school, and they're talking about how the main character. Part of the reason can you hold him accountable because the main character has literally ignored every single red flag, and. But they were, but the question being posed was, can you hold them accountable because they're ignoring every single red flag, even though their fate was already destined and decided for them by other powers? And so it it was interesting. And so what I think, and we get a little bit more in, and we'll talk about it later, but in the um, uh, group scene where uh, Tony Collette's character is in um, like mourning of someone who lost. All, all the stuff is there laid out for her, right? But everyone continually ignores the red flags of something really sinister happening and really yeah. bad happening. 
Um, and we see that, yeah, and like even the husband completely ignores any and all red flags to the point where, and we'll talk about it later, Tony Collette is opening pictures to show him and he doesn't even look down at them. He looks he does, straight yes. at her, yeah. straight at her and is like, no, everyone is ignoring red flags, right? And so I forgot where I was going to go with this, but I, I think it's the point. I, I want to... <laughs> She she ignores the like f- red flags to an extent, but she's also one who starts seeing them. I mean, and then later, yeah, la- later on, yeah. I, but so so I don't think that I think that the she, red flag she should be paying attention to. She starts exactly. focusing on other things. Should she? I mean, look- sh- should she be paying attention? To them, I mean, do we want to blame like blame no, her? For no, that? I mean, no, she no, no, doesn't. No, no, no. She didn't catch them. It's how it's all she's she, known. She, you're absolutely right. She didn't catch them. She's not to blame for not right? catching them. It's, it's but, hard. Yeah, but it, well, that's it, what it, I mean. This is one thing I think that Ari Aster does so well, and I think oh, oh, does it better here than he did in Midsummer, where he he in a very subtle and sometimes not so subtle way just foreshadows things constantly. You know, and this, this, this discussion right here is one of those perfect points of like talking about how every character, almost every character in this film does not see the red flag. So can we hold them accountable for the things that happens? Yes. No. And he continuously does this throughout the film. So I can't keep it in anymore, but here's a thought that I have and I find it so interesting. And also to be such a quick, you know, like, I just have to trace this back. I have to get this off my chest. Mm-hmm. So, there's plethora of foreshadowing in this movie yeah. where you go back and you watch it. What's another movie where has a sh- strange ending? There's been hints the entire time and is like one of the you know more famous horror movies in the in the nineties. Scream. Six Sense. Uh, six six sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. This movie, I, it's not like as much of like a twist ending. I, it, yeah. it, it is and it isn't. But uh, it, but there was something there, and then I just thought it was very yeah. poignant that. No, I love that. Movie in it. So in my mind, that was maybe a bigger point than it really was. But I'll <laughs> turn it back to you guys. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say one thing only because you brought it up, and why I love stuff that Ari Aster does this way. And unfortunately, I can't stand about M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong because <laughs> That's what I call he, used to be, he used to be very <laughs> good at it. He used to be very good at it, but he started making films just for the twist. Exactly. For that, for that reveal. And that's, you're just playing to the the spectacle, man. You know, like... To and have Alex, a twist you can... that's not in t- that's not that's it, like it's in an intended twist, but the the twist is not the payoff. The twist yeah. gets you to the payoff, and that's what Ari Aster does. Exactly. Well, I was just going to say, Alex, as a you know, Alex as a playwright and everything. I mean, you, you would know better than anyone that I'm assuming. Like, you really have to start with the story. Like, I, mean, I guess in some ways you can start with the ending and work your way backwards, but wouldn't it be better practice to start with the story and then the twist come later? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think where you even said this was meant to be a family drama and he saw the potential to make it a horror film. That's, yeah. your, you know, that, that, that metamorphosis right there. Well, anyone so who's ever been to a fucking family dinner knows that there's a horror film <laughs> there somewhere. <laughs> what I want to say about, uh, what's her name? Charlie's character. I actually find her character 
her character is essentially the like birth of every and it has not nothing to do with like the genetics of Millie, but the birth of every dysfunction of this family, right? Like she is a combination of it and she is the one who has to deal with all of it. She is the host to Payman's body. <laughs> she is the product of overprotective parents because those parents have not dealt and uh, um, dealt with their own issues. So they then, instead of responding to their issues and doing type of uh, a type of parenting that would be appropriate for raising her, they do reactionary parenting to everything that's happening and making sure that she's safe without actually teaching her anything without actually taking her into consideration. Again, as a person, she's invisible, which is why she liked her grandma. Her grandma was the only one who actually paid attention to her, even mm-hmm. though the only reason her grandma paid attention to her is because she hosts the demon that the grandma sacrificed her to. But still, like, it says a lot that she doesn't think that her mom or her brother or her dad would watch after her because they never yeah. actually have. They've only just reacted to whatever she has, her allergies, to the shyness that they have molded, and then they keep reacting to it. And so, like, ultimately, she as a character is to highlight the dysfunction of every other person, right? Like, Peter is a much more integral part of the movie and who he is and what he experiences, not necessarily her. Everything is told um, about, like, you know, how other characters were dealt with. And the three, the two major are Peter and the mom and Annie. Yeah. She's a reflection of her family's dysfunction that exactly. So we're supposed to her. We're supposed to see it and the neglect of her autonomy and her as a person. You guys want to? You guys want to dive into the plot? Yes, (laughs) let's do it. All right. So, Annie Graham, played by Tony Collette, is a miniatures artist who lives in Utah with her husband Steve Gabriel Byrne and their sixteen-year-old son Peter Alex Wolf and their 13-year-old daughter, Charlie, Lee Shapiro. At the funeral of her secretive mother, Ellen Lee, Annie delivers a eulogy explaining their fraught relationship and their mother's extremely private life. Let's talk about this opening. I love that they open with the obituary. Yes, it's smart. Yes. The obituaries are written on screen, and it's... There's details in there, but there's not. But I just thought it was such a good mood setting. It, it is. But it, get, it starts to give us that history that we need to, like, know to piece things together. Exactly. Because it talks about, you know, she's uh, survived by her, her daughter, but not, uh, her, not her son. You know, her husband is also dead. You know, and we see that the uncle's name is Charles and her name is Charlie. Like, the first time I read it... it it meant nothing to me. I was like, oh, yeah. It gives us information we didn't know we needed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. And then the miniatures, like the way they zoom into the miniature and then it turns out mm-hmm. to be Peter's room or like someone's room and they're, they're, the characters are walking around. It already sets up the movie's going to be com- compartmentalized because everyone in this movie is compartmentalizing. <laughs> I kept having the song... Little boxes on the hillside. <laughs> no idea what that song is. The opening yeah, song to Weeds, to, to Weeds, the TV show. Never watched it. 
Okay. Well, I well. Okay. Well, then you can turn your ears off. Alex, did you know that song is written about Daily City right next to I San Francisco? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, oh shit, that, I didn't know that. I'm going to now watch it. You didn't know the song, bitch. I know. <laughs> I wanted to be part of this convo. <laughs> I have written also here in my notes, just watching that opening, like, because Ari Aster was so strict about, um, about, like, using practical effects versus CGI, and that's, you know, the miniatures and all that. But I did, I'm like, how much is this CGI and how much was built by people? Because that is a seamless TikTok transition. And that also is just like, okay, yes, this is exactly why this needs to be on a soundstage and not shot like actually in a house. Yeah. Side note, just for all movies, it made me realize how much money has to go into just setting up a bedroom. Yes. Like I look at yes. like my bedroom and like all just the random little like tchotchkes <laughs> that don't have to do anything like don't serve a purpose other than just to be a there. That's all. That's all. I forget what they're called. I think they're called set dressers. The folks on set who just pick out all yeah. the knickknacks. But those folks, they. But that's expensive. That's expensive. They don't get enough credit. Oh yeah. Oh, it's okay. And moving on to the funeral, I don't know if either of you have had to deliver a eulogy. I did. I delivered my grandmother's, and it's it's a very intimate and i mean i like as someone who you know i went to school for theater all like and this was in the south and all these little old ladies are coming up to me being like now where were you in seminary school it took everything in me side note to also say uh, i haven't been to seminary school but i'll tell you where i've been inseminated <laughs> uh my mom would not have been happy <laughs> if that had been my response <laughs> uh my my cousin's a minister they got it confused whatever but i Delivering a eulogy is so awkward because there's a bit of a performative standpoint, but you also want to be vulnerable and and you want to be respectful. Her eulogy, though, I'm like, girl, you're leaving like nothing to the imagination. You're like flat out talking shit about your mother. <laughs> but she really doesn't have much else to say, it sounds like. Yeah. And she's just trauma dumping anywhere she can. I mean, she also doesn't know these people, so who fucking cares, well, right? She also, like, yeah. Well, she also didn't know her mother that well. It's like... Exactly. Point, also, Paul, there is a performative side to it where you're like, I gotta fill space for the next two and a half minutes. What do you say about this woman? Shh. And it's almost like constantly she does... Because I, I think... I can't speak, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like she does this twice. I know she does it in the room... Or when she's later in the therapy scene, but she does go back and she has to almost to say it to herself, like, I loved my mother. She's saying yeah. all this stuff, but I loved my mother. But I loved she my mother. Ha- th- tell her yeah. back. This happens a lot with her. She's like, things come out of her mouth and she has no idea that it came out of her mouth. It happens with Joan where she says, my daughter mm-hmm. was killed. She doesn't say my daughter was died. And she goes, she like is shocked that she said it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then she says it with her son. I never wanted to have you. Boom. Constantly uh, like she cannot because when you have that much inside you, it can't stay there. It has to come out. So she has she has no control, like no control yeah. whatsoever of anything. All right. A week later, Steve is informed that Ellen's grave has been desecrated while Annie thinks she sees an apparition of Ellen in her workshop. 
At a support group for the bereaved, Annie reveals that the rest of her family suffered from mental illness that resulted in their deaths. Peter is crushing on a girl in his class. One evening, he receives a text from his friend who informs him of a huge party by telling him to bring his dick. Now, okay, I normally, I normally, I'm a stickler. Normally, I'm a stickler for being like, okay, when I do these summaries, let's not talk about the last thing that I said, but we'll go back. I want to go back, but just so I can get this off my fucking chest, I'm going to spoil my only gay gaze I could come up with. Peter's friend is gay because the text messages that they have are way too no homo. I wrote them down. The first one, when we meet Peter's friend, when he's texting his friend in, in class, the text thread says, some, his friend asked him what he was up to, and Peter says, working, spelled W-E-R-K-I-N. Wanna <laughs> twirl around later, question mark? Friend, sure, let me just finish waxing my D. Mm-hmm. Peter. Ah! Good luck. Send pics. And then the text during the class is, want to smoke a bowl at break? <laughs> Later, we get a text message inviting Peter to a party Bring where he includes a line that, Pablo, all of my text messages going forward are going to include. <laughs> Bring your dick. And the text says, text says, holy shit, huge party tomorrow at Aaron's house. Bring your dick. <laughs> The only queerness I can find in this movie is that friends, <laughs> that friend is going to come out later. <laughs> That's all. Okay, so going back, <laughs> a few things actually stand out in this little scene of school. Peter's not paying attention to the conversation, and the conversation is about the main character not paying attention <laughs> and how everything bad is going to happen to him because he just doesn't pay attention. Exactly. And on the and on the wall or on the wall on the uh, on the chalkboard, they're talking about Hercules and everything. But it says like themes escaping fate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. the The other thing that's really interesting that I do want to touch on that I did like is when Annie goes to the bereavement group. She talks about her siblings, or her dad, and her mom and her brothers' um, mental illnesses. But in the context of everything, mental illness can only live within a context, you know, if. What does that mean? Um, you, yeah, 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 like, yeah. If you, you're not crazy if you're actually seeing demons. <laughs> you're not crazy if someone's actually stalking you. If no one's stalking you and you think that you are, then yes, you are having a psychotic episode if it's not happening. But if it is happening, you're not having a psychotic episode. If someone is treating you like shit. You're not overreacting with rage when you get hurt or you're, you know? And so she talks about how her brother had schizophrenia and he kept blaming the mom for trying to put people inside him. Well, the mom was literally trying to put people inside him. Put people inside of him. The dad had psychotic depression. And under different contexts, that sounds really crazy. Exactly. The dad had psychotic depression. So the hereditary that we're first introduced to is mental illness right but then once you understand the context in which it all lives that's not the her that's not what they're inheriting because yeah. not, mental illness probably never really existed with these people yeah. because they're truly reacting to something that's really happening and i found that really 
really fascinating. I, I, I just like that. It's because very then, unsettling. And that's such makes, a good point. It makes you think, what is it that they're inheriting? What they're inheriting yeah. is actually a demonic curse or this thing. But it also then goes on to Joan. I have a question about Joan. But everything that they're, me- but everything that they're mentioning are things that, because correct me if I'm wrong, like schizophrenia can be can be hereditary there are certain like it is I mean, there, typically uh, hereditary yeah. Like, yeah. almost always like i mean a, a lot of stuff like this like i touched on epilepsy i have epilepsy yeah and i very managed but i and there are other family members of mine afterwards who we later learned or diag- were diagnosed with epilepsy um and it's well that's not the same type of thing as schizophrenia but it, it did pick up everything that she mentioned could be explained away, which is a thing in horror movies. And we'll just, I guess, even in life, we try to explain away, like find the easier explanation. Exactly. Everything that she says can be explained away with like it's normal causes. It's hereditary. And that's why that's the brilliance of Ari Aster is he's giving us all of the information when, like you had said, when she's talking about the brother, the uh, the group therapy scene is is brilliant. Yeah. Also says a lot about her that she's lying about going to the group therapy because she tells her husband that she's going to go see a movie. Well, it it's funny because, you know, she has the words. She uses psychotic depression. That is such a real thing, but no one actually talks about it. No one knows that psychotic depression actually exists. So she uses the the like correct language for a lot of things. She lives with a man who essentially diagnoses these things. What he doesn't yeah. do is deal with the context. So he's quick to label her crazy and going out of this like out of her mind when the reality is there is a cult. And a dead body was put in the house. A lot of things are happening. Like it's constantly labeling something because we don't know how to explain it. And when it's actually something else. Oh, yes. This is why this movie is so brilliant. There's so much of this. It's so rich. It's impregnated with so many good things. It's fun to use that word. I I have a question uh, for you two gentlemen, and I may be sheepish if I, if I miss this, but do we ever get clarity when she's like, I haven't been to one of these meetings since I was forced to go. Yeah. Do we know why she was forced to go? Was it because I, of the death brother. of her brother? I think that's it what brother. it was. Yeah. 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 Cause I think she says okay. forced to go since my brother died. Like I think, she well, because, has it, she says well, it because died. it, well, the, my understanding is the structure of that meeting is not dissimilar from any sort of like 12 step meeting or, like mm. my understanding of them. Yeah. So I don't know if there was another type of meeting like in other movies. And I'm glad Ari Aster didn't do this to Annie that he didn't make her like a recovering alcoholic. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, kind of did that to the dad a little bit, but I'm glad that we, Annie didn't was not given that treatment. So I was just curious if there was something I missed. No, uh, I think you're right. I think yeah. I perceived it as the brother or maybe her father, but it was definitely family related because the way and the way she talks about it too, it's you know, you can tell there's still a lot of pain and a lot of a lot of yeah. shame that's connected to it. The way she glosses over it, but also she gets a lot of mic time. You think in those meetings, it'd be like, um, okay, girl, can you keep it to <laughs> three well, minutes? And the the, the <laughs> other thing that's sad is Joan is right there watching her. Like 
Joan is in this exact meeting. Does anyone- when you rewatch that scene and realize that well, she's spilling out to Joan the entire time. The first time I saw it, I didn't even notice she was there. Well, Joan's yeah. also supposedly been going for three minutes. And Alex, good point. I did actually, when I was doing my most recent rewatch, and when she says that I've been going for two months, I did pause and rewind and go back and make sure that Jen was there. Yeah. She was. Or Joan. Jen, Joan. Joan. Yeah. Well, it had been four. So Joan says that she's been going to the meetings for four months and she hadn't seen her for four, four months. months. Charlie died four months before. Joan showed up at that time that she was going to show up, letting you know this was all planned. They yeah. all were, uh, all of the actions were put forth to make this happen. And they knew the steps needed to get where they need to get from point A to point B. Can we just refer to Ariaster as the Easter bunny? Because all these Easter eggs <laughs> <Right>? he's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a few I noticed uh, this on this most recent watch, but uh, we can we can touch back on that later when we get closer to talking about the cult. But yeah, yeah. Well, let's get we 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 have a lot of cover. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of stuff to cover. So, all right. So, moving on to the party. To attend this party, Peter lies that he is going to a school event, and Annie forces him to take Charlie with him. Unsupervised, Charlie eats eats cake containing nuts, which she is allergic to, and falls into an anaphylactic shock. As Peter drives her to a hospital, Charlie leans out the window for air. Peter swerves to avoid a dead to avoid a dead deer, and Charlie is decapitated by a telephone pole. In shock, Peter silently drives home and leaves his, leaves his sister's corpse in the car for their mother to discover the next morning. The family grieves following Charlie's funeral, heightening tensions between Annie and Peter, and Peter is plagued with seeing elements of Charlie. Okay. This party. No fucking way am I taking my 13-year-old sibling not, to a party when I'm not once, 16. Not and no yet. way am and no way if I was a 13-year-old that was like Charlie would I want to go. Charlie didn't want to go either. Yeah, no, and it was so awkward. One note that I do have that Tony Collette, what I love about her is that she does there's just something about the way she says certain lines. And I don't know if you two watched United States of Terra, but there's a part where he's asking to go and she's like, will I be drinking? And she's just like, well, that's a crock. Yeah. I said, <laughs> "I, well, that's a crock. I said, are you going to be drinking? And she has this like vocal fry to her that's just so like, I don't know why. It just got me so excited. I was like, oh, I'm with Tony Collette. Yeah. <laughs> um, This party. So there's a lot more walnuts being cut than there is cake. The cake is actually really small, but that's the point because they, this is like one of those movies. And I think Ari Oster or someone has actually gone on record to say that it was intentional because it's supposed to ensure the death of Charlie. No one would ever cook that. No one would ever cook a cake with that much that that like that amount of walnuts but because charlie really? is allergic to walnuts it is part of the 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 fate that it needs to be so much because that has to ensure that she gets killed payment the, the cult and payment and the whatever has to ensure that charlie dies no one would ever bake a cake at a fucking i was just got- no <laughs> Exactly. You'd it's be lucky all if they picked up cupcakes from the store. Yeah, the way over. it's all 
a setup to kill Charlie. Like I was always like, uh, that's a lot until Ari Aster was like, yeah, it's a setup to kill Charlie. Like it is a universal, like metaphysical amorphous, like, you know, the fucking hell's setup to ensure Charlie dies to ensure that you know she's what? decapitated. You, you want st- to, you want to stay away from nuts. Don't bring your dick. Right. It's also funny. <laughs> Everything is, everyone's decapitated, right? So. <laughs> Everyone is decapitated. The pigeon, the yeah. uh, like it's all about, and all the toys. She's oh, constantly yeah. making toys, which she come keeps back later. Talking, taking the heads off and putting them on. Yeah, I just also I felt so much discomfort for Charlie because like her brother is like this is also where I feel like there's similarities between Annie and Peter. Peter agrees to bring his sister to this party, just trying to like appease his mom. Yeah. Right? He's like, okay, I'll, I'll I'll bring her. And you can, like, Peter does love his sister. But there's a certain amount of he's just trying to appease his mom and not say no to his mom. Just like she kind of does with her mom throughout her entire life. And it, again, ultimately ends up biting her yeah. in the ass. Because when Peter's at the party, he... This gave me so much fucking anxiety for some reason of leaving Charlie to be like, oh, you want a piece of cake? Yeah, go get a piece of cake. At 13 years old, I would not feel comfortable going up to a group of teenagers who are there partying being like, can I have a piece of cake? I would hide in the fucking closet like I did yes. for 19 years of my life. But yeah. I like that, like for some reason made me so uncomfortable. But Peter's also, let's not forget Peter's a child too. Yeah, yeah, he was the kid. He also yeah. shouldn't be driving without a minor, <laughs> without an adult, I should say, in the car. Is he supposed well, to be? He 16? has his license. He's I think 16. he's like sixteen. Yeah. yeah. And in Utah, I think that I think you can be even younger. See, like, it's I mean, all set up to kill her. But you can't get an abortion. No. <laughs> well, she does say you. You're you're right in the. Uh, Annie does say in the bereavement group that she gave her daughter to her mom. Because she wouldn't let her near Peter. Because she gave birth to Peter and she wouldn't let her near Peter. I have something when we get to a scene later, I have something really cool uh, that, that I discovered. Talk about the relationship between Annie's mom and Charlie. One of the biggest things being that fucking disgusting, well, uh, miniature set. Did you see that? With yeah. her, where she's trying to breastfeed Charlie, the grandma? Yeah, yeah. it's a miniature set. We're also, Annie has a lot of time on her hands. She has a million she, and a half different uh, like miniature sets. But Ari Aster's a sick little pervert with, I think, some weird kinks. We see this miniature of what we can assume is Annie feeding Charlie, breastfeeding Charlie, but her mother is there next to her with her boob out, with her tit out, being like, hey, well, hey, if she if you run out, <laughs> chomp on here. <laughs> well, do you remember when she was talking to, when Annie was talking to Charlie, when she was uh, tucking her in after her grandmother's funeral, and she said, so you know she was your favorite. She has one line where she says, she was crazy about you. Even when you were a baby, she insisted on feeding you. Yeah. She loved you that much. Yep. And you like when you it's such a throwaway line, but then when you see that miniature, you're like, "Oh, Grandma was trying to give you a hitite. Like yeah. she was trying to feed oh. you from the source. That is. Oh, weird. I'm gonna blow your mind later because I actually have more to expand upon that line. Oh. <laughs> then yeah, 
Whoa. So Annie is befriended by a support group member, Joan. Joan provides her number and Annie puts it on a piece of paper and leaves it in her workspace. After she spills some paint on this number, so funny. she decides to reach out. Over tea, Annie tells her that she used to sleepwalk and recounts an incident in which she woke up in Peter's bedroom to find herself, Peter, and Charlie covered in paint thinner with a lit match in her hand. After telling the story, she subtly pulls a dark-looking leaf or out of her mouth that was left in the tea. Later, over dinner, the tension between Peter and Annie boils over and erupts with Annie blaming Peter for his lack of accountability and remorse for what happened. She states that if he owned up to his wrongdoing, wrongdoing, they could probably move past this. He, in turn, reminds her that Charlie never wanted to attend the party. So here's, I'm going to back up to this meeting with Joan and the thing I was foreshadowing just a second ago. So when Annie is there and she's drinking this tea, she pulls out this like black looking herb thing, right? The black herb. I did. I did not realize this until I watched a YouTube video who called this out to me. I want to give them credit. Their name is. It's a satanic herb. Speaky. I felt speak. uh, Speak my movies. Point this out. Yes, it's a satanic herb. In another part of the film, we see pictures of Annie's mother feeding with a bottle Charlie. In that bottle, you see speckles of the herb in that bottle. It is written, oh. and it is written in the script. It is written in the script that that is to be there. Oh, so yeah. there is stuff going on with the ritual that has to do with that herb. Yeah. Again. Ari Aster, what? And you never, you never would notice it Mm -mm. unless you, and you have to go back and you kind of have to even like really look close, but you see it there. And then they also side by sided it with the script of the film where it is absolutely intentional. So that her looking at that like tea thing, we may just think, okay, she's trying to drug, drug Annie, but whatever. No. One of the things, so my question is, um, we know Payman needs to take on a male host, and we know that Joan is part of the cult that's trying to come in and summon the male host, and it's a sacrifice, essentially. Joan has two men who died in her family, her son and her grandson. Now, did they exist, and if they did, did she try to sacrifice them so that payment could go into their body. Maybe as an attempt, I think it yeah. was supposed, I think it was supposed to be this lineage. I think it was supposed to be Annie's family. Cause we took learn about the brother. Um, maybe even the, maybe even the dad too, mm-hmm. but that's a that's a really good point that they were a b testing they were a b testing who payment could go. <laughs> she's like into. trying to like she, she's like fuck the queen I'm gonna come up I'm gonna make it my son or great I'm gonna make it Louis or my son. <laughs> that is Joan. That is so Joan. <laughs> yeah, I, I I find yeah I mean like these people are evil like she's not good you know I have a book on it's this really weird book on black occult um or black magic occult magic. But it's the history of it, but telling it in ways of like with the assumption that all of it is real. 
And uh, yeah, people who, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I know if one of you gets seven beans, the other one gets whiskey, and someone else finds me the severed head of a criminal man, I know how to make all of us invisible. Just well, saying. I'm just always trying to find some head. Right? And <laughs> I'm not trying to find it. I'm just trying to give it away. Got, all we got to do is summon a loser, and we're good. Just get on grinder. <laughs> For real. <laughs> Um, the argument at the end, what's really funny is she's trying to, uh, like, one, this is where we see that Peter has the worst table manners. It's fucking so wild. Um, but also, she's trying to get him to admit something that she herself cannot admit either. It's super funny that she's essentially just fighting with herself. Well, I mean, this is like, this is just total tension this is this has been a conversation that has been the elephant in the room for a long time we need to make sure that we give enough space for this scene this dinner scene is so powerful this and i think as i touched on earlier like steve's role in this was supposed to be a little bit bigger because he was supposed to be kind of defending but i think it's just so much better subtly communicated kind of with his eyes kind of darting back and forth and you see her just lose it well, it's this comes after something. She's telling him, "You need to admit. You need to admit what you did, but you won't admit yeah. it." After we just learned that she tried to set her family on fire, and she kept making excuses that she would never do that, she cannot admit what she did to traumatize the family. Then she throws it at her. She's mad at her son for not forgiving her. And then she throws it back at him. I will never be able to forget. They are so similar. I think yes, that they are. They're, they are very, very similar. And I think that, I mean, I've talked about her multiple times. Like my mom, I will never hold as much respect for any person in this world as I hold for my mom, like unequivocally. And But she is also the person that like set me off the quickest because she and I are so similar. And I see that dynamic and like, and I like my mom and I have a very, very healthy, healthy relationship, but it's, they don't, and they have this similarity that you kind of have to overcome and like recognize. And, you know, it's taken my mom, you know, a few years to like recognize we never had like a toxic relationship, but I I'm just only using this as an example to see to like, it's whatever that small amount could have been this is on steroids and there is is so untreated is so unhealthy because he also fucking claps back (laughs) right at her he's inheriting his mom's coping and communication skills right yeah it's that they're not they're neither of them are taking responsibility and they're placing they're they're looking to place blame and for that 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 validation of I have taken on this burden because of the actions that you have done that you won't admit to. Exactly. She's doing the exact same thing. Exactly. Taught writing. Moving on. Annie continues to work on her miniatures, seemingly creeping closer to a deadline. While and while leaving the art supply store, she runs into a cheerful Joan who convinces her of her happiness following the seance she'd attended performed by a spiritual medium. This shows that Joan does in fact have contact with her grandson who communicates with her via chalkboard. Joan then teaches Annie to perform the seance to communicate with Charlie. Now running into Joan, Joan just always happens to be be around around, super ecstatic to show her, you know, about the spiritual medium. And then again, this is one of those things in hindsight, we were like, oh, this is a plant. This is a plant. 
Well, they dropped the spiritual medium flyer into their mail scenes earlier. Yeah, very so. They do. And, okay, and you know how it's put in there? In the original script, there was actually supposed to be uh, the, a shot of Annie pulling it out and seeing it. That was one of the things that was cut. Again, yeah. the less is more mm, thing. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to All being like, like, okay, we see it. We can assume that maybe she's encountered it before, but it's just super, super like blink and you miss it kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really interesting in that scene too. If, and, and maybe this is just me, but like the way Tony Collette's character sees Joan, it's to how you put it, Paul, it's like she's always there. Like it's almost an like she's surprised but not surprised and kind of annoyed but still goes over to says hi. It's really quick. It's like her bot her her total body goes, what? Huh, man? Okay, and like goes over and says hi. It's like th- that this keeps happening kind of thing, but we don't see those other incidents. Yeah. It's just those two. And the, and then Joan comes over. She's like, have you heard about this brand Lularoe? I've made so much money exactly. selling these diets. <laughs> And then this scene with the chalkboard. Uh, so we have this seance, you know, make a believer out of me, <laughs> Joan. Uh, the scene with the chalkboard is actually also done practically. It's the same way, ironically, uh, to the movie version of Matilda where they did it. Mm-hmm. It was a very expensive, really hard scene to do practically uh, because they used magnets with the chalk and everything. But super so cool. No, I, so that is cool. really cool. That seven-year-old boy has really good handwriting for a seven-year-old boy, by the way. Carl, that's not a seven-year-old boy. Okay, so, okay I know. so here's a question. Who wrote that? Was it... It wasn't her actual was, grandson. Like, like who? who is this demon that's, like... It's the demon, yeah. Good question. Is it Payman, right? Because Payman is essentially the flashing light. Every time you see the flashing light. Payman's useless. Payman can't even get his own fucking body. Like, I mean, like, God, (laughs) this is us serving white men. (laughs) (laughs) And the patriarchy continues. Thank you, God. Utah. So there there is one thing that I noticed in that scene, in those two little scenes there that I never noticed before, uh, when, when they're in Joan's apartment and she's conducting the seance and she's telling her that this is my grandson's chalkboard and, you know, she calls out to him and gets him to, 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 to write on the chalkboard and she and Joan uh, shows her. If you look carefully at the prior scene at the uh, art store, when Joan, when Joan is loading stuff into her car, the chalkboard is there and it's in the packaging. She's loading she up a chalkboard. She just bought that chalkboard. Yeah. Oh, I was going to bring that up. That. I was going to bring that up. Oh, I didn't catch that. I thought these well, one other thing that man, we see in Joan. Yeah. Well, one of the other things we see with Joan, like Joan's also been stealing shit from the house because later we see a shot where all of like Charlie's toys that she's building, which is also another hereditary thing, but all these toys she's been building are on her table. Yep. Another hereditary thing we see is, you know, Annie builds these miniatures. Uh, Charlie does the, uh, the toys that she's making. And we see Peter's a musician. He plays yep. guitar. There's like, there's True, multiple yeah. instruments in his, in his bedroom. They're very so. yeah. creative and artistic. So Annie wakes from a nightmare and convinces her family to attempt this seance. 
Objects begin to move and break, terrifying Peter, and Charlie seemingly possesses Annie until Steve douses her with water. Annie suspects that Charlie's spirit has become malevolent. She throws Charlie's sketchbook into the fireplace, but her sleeve also begins to burn, showing that she is connected with it. She retrieves it and heads to Joan, Joan's apartment for, for advice, but Joan is nowhere to be found. This seance scene is unhinged. Something happens before this seance that I, I think, and one of the things that happens a lot in this movie, there's a lot of little throwaway lines that I think are really important into identifying the state of mind and what really, who these people really are. Mm-hmm. When she wakes up Peter, he tells her, I was having a nightmare. And she goes, it's fine. It's fine. Come with me. Come with me. She brushes off the fact that he was having a nightmare. But all we've ever seen is every every time they have a nightmare, it signifies that Payman and the demon is getting closer, that something really sinister is happening, something really bad. And it ties into something that Annie experiences a lot. When she tells her husband something bad is happening, he never wants to hear it and he he brushes brushes it off. off. She does the exact same thing. And it's very subtle. He literally goes, I was having a nightmare. He doesn't say anything else. And she she literally goes, it's okay. It's fine now. Come with me. I I found that to be way no, more telling than, than 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 a lot of stuff, right? Because she herself was just having a nightmare. She, you know, she's constantly having nightmares, and it all means something. But that seance is fucking b a n a n a s bananas, and like, and it's so. And you, but you see small things starting to happen, or you see that Peter is becoming the center of this, where he's like, Dad, can't you feel the air flexing? Yes. Like, there's obviously this is all planted. Like, Joan was like, Okay, we need to get her to do the seance, thinking that it's going to be to get with Charlie, but actually, it's doing some, it's the result, the goal of it is to do something to Peter. And then he's studying, he's, and Alex Wolf is so good in with his acting there because he just breaks down like nobody's business left yeah. right and center well, because he's being so affected by whatever is happening to him through this ritual. Well, she says she says some of the words that she's supposed to. And I don't know if you noticed, she says the name payment in those words. She's like says random. Oh, payment, I didn't hear and that. She says payment. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, because that's a good catch. That's so good. They had to do it themselves to invite him in. And that's how they were tricked into it with the paper. The paper comes back later when she goes through her mom's stuff. But she says the word, she says, like, uh, uh, that, uh, payment, payment, ba, da, ba. you know, she says these re- random words not knowing what they are and payment is in there. That was really, I was yeah. like, fuck. So <laughs> never trust anything that some white Karen gives you never in a have. fucking Jones, Jones Fabrics parking lot. Right, uh, I was like, if you don't shop at if you don't her. shop at Chico's, I ain't fucking actually doing shit. Right, like, come on, I need a Chico's dress for me to actually validate you as a woman. Just kidding. Some weird shit goes down in Hobby Lobby parking lots. I didn't want to say anything, but thank you. I'm a Michaels kind of girl. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Annie notices for a second time that Jones welcome Matt resembles her mother's craft work. She goes through her mother's possessions and finds a photo album linking Joan to Ellen and a book with information about a demon named Payman who wishes to inhabit the bo- the body of a male host. In the attic, Annie finds Ellen's decapitated body with strange symbols on the wall written in blood. Okay, 
like I can understand them overlooking the first time of being like, oh, that looks like my mother's artwork. Like my grandmother did needlepoint. Like we have a lot of weird shit like that. So that makes sense. But there's too much. I, if I saw those pictures of Joan with my mom, I really do think my like intestines would fall yeah. out. My ass would like that. Like I would freak the fuck Lose out. Lose your damn mind. A few things happened here that I thought was interesting. One of the pillows, which said Charles or Charlie, had the payment symbol on it on mm-hmm. the sides. That was her her brother's. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. The other her thing, brother was her brother named Charles. Yes. Yeah, he's the, the one who, who killed. Yeah, yeah. Killed the himself. other thing, they don't flat out show the paper that what's her name gives that um, Joan gives Annie, but you see it because she's like reference it and holds it open. It has the exact same symbolism and the exact same writing as a book that she pulls out that her mom has. And it's like random symbols. And she's like, what? Okay. And that's it. She kind of like tosses it to the side and then she finds her mom. It's like a copy from this like, you know, invocation book or whatever. This like book that that her mom had, which I thought was like a really cute touch. She was like super sweet. Those Ari Aster Easters. Ari Easter. Ari Aster Easter. Aster <laughs> Easters? Aster Easter. Okay, that's a that's an Alex Perry original. <laughs> okay, but also, I'm sorry. There's multiple times where they need to call the police. First of all, oh. they need to call oh. the police when the mother's grave has been desecrated. And I don't know. I might think a good step would be telling Annie that her mother's grave was desecrated to Annie. Yeah, well, you should have fucking called the cops. We didn't learn... Something happened, like, we get the call, but then we don't hear what happens. It's not until right. he's writing an email, like, my wife is losing yeah. it or on a nervous breakdown, that he receives an email, and we see that the grave has been desecrated and the body has been taken out. I thought during that first phone call, you hear something about, like, it's been desecrated. There's something going on He with says the grave. that one, yeah, he goes, what do you mean, desecrated? Yeah. And then, the, like, he and moves he, on. And, 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 and then he just, like, getting. leaves. That's it. Right, but why? I'm just saying that would be, I don't know, a fair time to clue in, like, hey, honey, like, I know now it's not a good time, but uh, the funeral home called and said that your mom's grave yeah. is desecrated. I just wanted to just wanted to keep you in the loop. No action needed. Well, I just wanted to. <laughs> he he t- he tells her later that he knew it happened, but he chose not to tell her because she was in a fragile state. Well, and this keeps coming back to what you said, Pablo. Like this is them. Not like it's it's all cyclical. Like yeah. they're all blaming each other and doing exactly what they're complaining about to each other the entire time and ignoring the giant red fucking flags that have been waving in their face since the moment this movie started. Exactly. It, I mean, the only way that this could happen <laughs> is if they literally ignore the fucking flags, explain it away, and say, <laughs> "Ah, you know what? Red's not my color. I'm good." <laughs> all right. Moving forward, at school, Peter becomes possessed and slams his head against his desk, breaking his nose. Annie shows Steve her mother's body and the sketchbook. Annie begs Steve to burn the sketchbook so she can sacrifice herself to stop the haunting. But Steve assumes she has gone mad, accusing her of desecrating Ellen's grave herself. When Annie throws the book into the fireplace, Steve bursts into flames instead. And Annie becomes yeah. possessed. This is a scene that I was talking about. When she's trying to show him everything, he's not, he's just squarely staring at her. She's like, look, 
Like, Joan is in these pictures. Look at these sketchbooks. Look at everything. This symbol was up there. Look, look. He refuses to look at it. He's yeah. not looking. And then he goes, you did it. And she's like, what? <laughs> yeah, he's just form- formulating his accusation. He's not even listening. No, to yeah. He, 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 he's not in listening. His, in his defense, though, I mean, he's not like watching all the scenes that that we're watching there is something to be said for you know he's been watching i'm not defending i'm not doing i'm not i'm not pulling an andrew tate or joe rogan or anything right now but i'm more so just saying like he has re i will say he has reason to be like her mother's corpse is in the fucking attic like i do think yes believe your wife believe everything but there is also some reason for him to have pause no no who he just he just found out she's been lying to him saying he's going to the movies when she's going to where, you know, wherever she's been going. Then. Yeah. But he should also believe, but I will say the point he should have believed her is when the supernatural shit starts happening, which of course is when the husbands like still just don't see it. But that, that's a, that's a, a flaw and another cliche, which I'm going to talk about during my, you know, that husbands don't see it. Yeah. When the house screams, get out and you don't, it is shocking. Cause she throws that sketchbook and assuming that again it's going to light her on fire but instead it lights him on fire that is i'm curious what happened there they don't need him i don't disagree with, with that but i'm just kind of curious um not like the logic of like why did it light her on fire first the first time and then why well, why is it lighting him on fire you know what i mean i think to get her to get it out like it's to get her to get it out and because he's not part of their lineage you know he's not related to yeah. Ellen. Uh, he's not part of the. Point. He's not part of the lineage. He, like, once he was present, she did it. He's. They're like, we're done with him. Bye. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah, and it immediately she's immediately possessed with. We can assume is Charlie or you no? Know, she's just hey, payment. Payment. I thought payment. All payment. that yeah. light that we see everywhere is payment. That reflects always that's payment. Saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's always payment. Totally. Okay. Uh, well, Peter then awakens to, oh, wait, really fast. Want to quickly jump back. Just a quick little fun fact. When Peter slams his face into the desk, yeah. the actor wanted to do that stunt himself. And they're like, uh, okay, well, he didn't realize that the top of the desk was foam and the bottom was not and he, so when he slammed his face into it not only did he create a wonderful effect he fucking dislocated his jaw yeah ah! he actually got hurt for real oh, that's brutal this hurt, set was cursed with payment <laughs> right <laughs> but peter awakens to find his father's body annie follows him around the house ultimately chases him into the attic attic into the attic, which is decorated with cult imagery. Levitating, Annie beheads herself with piano wire as naked coven members look on. Peter jumps out of the window. He then lies on the ground. A light enters his body, and he wakes up. He follows Annie's levitating corpse into Charlie's treehouse, where Charlie's crowned, severed head rests atop a mannequin. Joan and other coven members and the headless corpse of his mother and grandmother bow to him. Joan, addressing him as Charlie, swears an oath to him as payment, stating that he has been liberated from his female host, Charlie, and is free to rule over them. Girl. 
So, so. I were, were you going to touch on this, Alex? One of the so we all of the cult members keep coming in closer and closer, and it's around this mm-hmm. scene that we start seeing them more. But did you know they're literally from the beginning? And mm-hmm. every scene, almost in every scene, there's there. Certain like elements that you pick you up. You have to look like been there. You have to look and like like when they do shots of the house, you have to look behind because there's mm-hmm. like one or two. And every time they get closer and closer and closer, the guy smiling in the closet was the guy who was smiling oh God, at no. Charlie at the beginning of the movie. I have yeah. nightmares about that face in the closet. That guy is That's, creepy as fuck. Yeah, he is a creepy. creepy. So fun. So fun fact, they originally in the script, they were not supposed to be naked. They were going to be in like red cloaks. Naked. But Ari Aster switched it to being naked to add kind of that you may like red cloaks, yes, that would be creepy, but the naked thing is disarming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really so next disarming. level. One th- one thing I do want to touch on, I know this is a little out of order, but when they're all bowing to him. I don't know if anyone caught this, but we didn't touch on this scene at all. And it's uh, like, I we don't see have personal problem. reasons to like, to talk about it, about where a mother's loss. Uh, when Annie learns that Charlie is dead, which we have not touched on. I'm mad that it's probably my fault. We skipped over the fact that he fucking leaves the corpse in the car and just. Yeah. Pieces out. Well, yeah. Yeah. But when Annie is in is grieving, she is doing this like downward dog, like 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 praying kind of motion, being saying, "I want to die. I can't do this." And that is the exact same position that all of these worshippers are in later. Yeah. yeah. Also, r- really quick, there's a dog throughout this. They have a pet throughout this entire film. When he wakes up after he sees, when Peter wakes up after he sees Charlie's ghost, mm-hmm. the dog is staring, kind of growling a little bit. It's like, what the fuck? Then we hear a weird sound. And it's like two days, right? No one has noticed that the dog is outside dead the entire time. The only other time, then the oh, next time yeah. we see the dog is when Peter gets up and walks and we see the corpse of the dog laying outside. Yeah. Again, they're not paying attention to it. But I mean, Right now they're being chased by demons, but they're not paying attention. This dog is fucking dead. <laughs> this movie does such a good job with just like the last like 20 minutes and it answers so many questions and it does such a good job of like a lot of times movies get critiques for being like all this stuff happens. And then in the last 10 minutes, they try to solve all of it. Technically, that's what this movie does, but it's not that it solves as much as it really like answers yes yeah all of the questions and it really tie yeah exactly it ties it all in we don't see anybody's butthole either and i'm like they're bent over i have been to many (laughs) a sex party okay but we see their fucking tracheas like i mean it's (laughs) no realism i want to see a okay okay. i want i Call Ari Aster and tell him you want more butthole in his next movie. (laughs) Thank you. So he has like 10 films or something that he like he's written that he wants to write. This is like this and Midsummer, two of his 10. He has a new one coming up with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, I think. Mm -hmm. He does. I don't know how I feel about Joaquin Phoenix. The wrong Phoenix died. Shut up. <laughs> that is that is for another podcast. Okay, that, I take it back. I take it back. That sounded like a death threat. Yeah, that's so good.
Let's go into our anal cysts. Well, let's start with you, Alex. What's your anal cysts? Ooh, layers, layers, layers. This this film is all about layers, and it peels them back. And we've touched on this time and again with the writing, with the cinematography, with the acting, but it's it's one of the rare films that I think does a, such a good job of of wholly letting you, the audience members, into this world and into these characters' lives with such detail that, like you said, he never assumes that we're stupid, that we know what's going on, but gives us just enough to get us to the next point without being too confused or too lost. Yeah. And does it, you know, the horror is done in such a, it, there are jump scares, but they're not jump scares. It's, 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 it's a little bit, it's, it's not as uh, uh, deliberate as that, you know, it's scary. It's jump scary for a different reason because you're, mm-hmm. there's so much tension throughout the film and so much evil that you feel throughout the film, even when you don't know what's going on. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. don't know what I, I, I won't, I don't have a stamp to put on, but yeah. no, I love it. I love You're it. right. For me, for me, I think this movie is actually all about, uh, what it's like to live in that moment is not resolved until you look back in hindsight. Mm-hmm. I think that there are so many pieces that, that are like puzzle pieces that fall into play that you would have, when you look at each individual puzzle piece, kind of even as they're kind of being thrown at you, you don't necessarily always look at where they're going to, where they're going to land until later. And you have a full picture. If, if that makes sense. Like, I think that, there's so many things like we're almost the victims of circumstance and what, what is kind of decided before us based off of previous actions. And ultimately there was no, this family was doomed from the beginning and we're kind of just watching this doom play out and we're rooting for them. But ultimately there's just this anxiety, this play off of like familial trauma that I think makes this so successful. This like, it, cause I think everyone, not every, I don't want to say everyone. Most people do have, you know, positive, negative, some sort of family dynamic and being able to kind of tap into that and the raw emotion that comes with, your familial relationships. It's always easy to look back and like I said earlier, blame your mom or blame, blame whomever is, you know, the cause of these events. But ultimately we're kind of on, on a road that we didn't necessarily pay for ourselves. Okay. Um, I love this film. I think this film, I think what makes this film actually terrifying is the context of family dysfunction and how suffocating it could be to come from a dysfunctional family. Well, no, I'm going to walk that back. How suffocating the dysfunction in everyone's family actually is for every player involved. And this film is essentially a family, a group of people who have chosen to continue the journey and not stop to examine why and how they're stuck on this journey. Right. There was a, there was this really interesting um, 
black feminist psychologist who said that the idea of intergenerational trauma is part of a narrative that tells people that we are inherit that we inherit stuff and we're helpless but we're actually not helpless we come from people who are resilient and come from this right and so this film and as it is our responsibility as people of color and all these things to really sit with what has been passed down to us what our ancestors and what the people before us experienced celebrate the good and stop continually putting ourselves in the victimized role and saying we're helpless to change it and this is a family who has been we're helpless to change it and we are allowing other people to control everything we're allowing this one woman and everyone else that she knows and fate to control our identities and our destiny. And I think that is what makes this movie really successful, which also is a reason why it went, it was celebrated by critics, but panned by audiences because the, and you're right. Like what you said, Alex, there's no, that's not really about the jump scares. It's not about any of that stuff. It's dialogue driven. It is emotion based. It is watching things where you're just like, crap, like, in a weird way, I can identify with that. You kept talking about that, Paul. Like you can identify with the matriarch and loving and blaming, but also being like, I actually really love her. You know, like that is the strength of this film, but it's also where like the horror of this film really lies, right? Yes, visually there's a lot yeah. of interesting stuff, but the horror really lies in the fact that we can relate to it because we all come from something very similar, right? It's just yeah. not a demon, you know, it's just everything else. I don't know. I mean, this might be reaching a little bit, but look at also the time in which it came out, 2018. It's two years after Trump was elected. We yeah. inherited some fucking demons. You know? Oh, 100%. Like, we, it's a exactly. very relatable, yeah. uh, very relatable storyline at the time. There are probably a lot of family dinners that resulted in, and don't you talk to me. I am your mother. I am not racist. I just don't think that what our border you? should be open. What about you? You voted for him. Like, there's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> Looking at me with that fucking face on your face. That was such a good line. All right. So moving on. Who are you stabbing? This one's hard. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Hard. I'm going to say it right now. I put, I wrote. No one. Yeah, no one. Because they're all either underage or like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I said I was like, no one's like hot enough to make a case for her. like <laughs> it's. So I just put pass. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a maybe a stab at that chocolate cake. I don't know. Oh yeah, I do like walnuts. I I am allergic to peanuts, but I can eat walnuts. So I'll take that fucking chocolate cake. Do you like these nuts? Was, there's so many <laughs> dick and ball jokes just. Hanging out, right? Hanging out, but I'm. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Um, All right, let's let's talk for the gay gays. Uh, We want to know how accessible this film is for a queer audience. At Scared Gay, we have a system to review the accessibility of the film broken up into three parts. Queer representation. Is a queer experience represented in the film within the writer, director, actors, or the topic of characters even queer aesthetic does the film understand the wants needs and language of the audience and queer embrace has a queer audience embrace this film um i what i will be stabbing is i'll be taking a stab at this um shut up i think because it's so much about family 
firmly that um, queer people can actually look at that and be like, y'all fucking crazy in my family. Like, you fucking are this, you are that. Like, you all uphold all this shit. Like, I think it's kind of a reach, but like, that might be it. But ultimately, I think because of the beauty of it, like, literal aesthetic beauty of this film and how like well written it is i think gay people queer queer audiences have an appreciation for that so i haven't really gotten that it's you know embraced or anything but i think they appreciate it we appreciate it i mean i mean like for me this just you know feels really personal because i can just say that you know my attraction to pull also caused a lot of family drama but it's also inherited from your mom (laughs) (laughs) don't you fucking talk about my mother like that pablo i can say that (laughs) and you ruined my joke (laughs) oh whoops no i i think that i don't think that this is a movie that i think there's certain things that queer audiences can latch onto i don't think it's a movie that in any sort of negative ways made for a queer audience because it's not it's made for it's made for people with families and so people who are queer have families so i think like that's kind of my association with it i think anyone can have these relationships with their parents whether it be because you're queer like doesn't matter your gender i think that the familial experience uh, or like people's experiences with their families is also directly you know, a big part of the, you know, queer, queer experience. But I don't think this movie is inherently a queer film other than the fact that Tony Collette. Yeah, that's. And, and the only gay character I can assume, which is Peter's friend who talks about, who's like, he's just trying to get in there subtly being like, I'm waxing my dick. And Peter's like, Oh, send pics. Uh, or he's like, Hey, bring your dick. Uh, his friend is trying to get. I'll get say like yell. that's the only gay character. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say like you you like had to go in to try to like figure out those texts. No one else is doing that, so it's not really like that big. <laughs> no, but I was just very fascinated by. It. I love you love that. Shit. I love well. I love when they show text. I love when movies show like journal. They'll like flash open on a, pa- a written page. I do pause things a lot to yeah. kind of read read in on it and i found that to just be really fucking yeah. funny where he's like uh <laughs> waxing my dick cool send pics it's just <laughs> it, it just shows more like such a fun friendship like alex i feel like this is how we talked in college yeah. too, and <laughs> so. i feel like that's how alex talks to me and yeah i cry i, I mean <laughs> not much oh. <laughs> fair enough all right well moving on it's time for travel, host, or ghost. We have a hookup-inspired rating system here at Scared Gay. Simple and split into three categories. Travel, you are going out of your way to get with this movie. A+. plus. Host, good enough, pleasurable, but you're not going out of your way. And ghost, hard pass, not memorable, and we'd likely only revisit in a moment of desperation. I'm, I'll go first. I'm going to say... It started out when I first saw it was a host, but as I've watched it over time, it's a total travel. Mm-hmm. Boys, uh, I, I, I'm I'm gonna travel as far as I can to get this thing. Yeah, it's, bitch, I get it. It's so good. It's so good. 
bitch, I ain't just traveling. I'm fucking immigrating. I'm applying for like asylum. I'm whatever I can. You know what? <laughs> you up. are getting a coyote. <laughs> Alex, I'm going to pack up my bags too. We are moving for this fucking film. It is so mwah, mwah. chef's kiss. So good. I love this film. All right, that was Hereditary 2018 with our awesome guest, Alex Perry. So please, if you yes. want to follow us, follow us on our socials, Instagram and tic- excuse me, Instagram and TikTok at Scared Gay Podcast. If you want to follow Alex, please, Alex, where can they follow you? Uh well, you can find me on Instagram at Alex Perry Perry Sauce. I usually am posting pictures of my kid and other goofy things, but yeah. we're here for Check it. Check it out if you want. If you want to follow me, I am on Instagram at the Exorcist SF and TikTok at Exorcist eighty three. And Paul, where can they follow you? Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Paul. You ever wanted? Awesome! Please follow Paul. It's fun. Is he's a he's he's, he's a fun Instagrammer. Shut up. Um, yeah. And like always, give us a five-star rating and give us a review and we'll read it out loud on the podcast. And if it's good enough, you'll get a thirst trap. (laughs) Not of me or Paul. You'll just like, we'll just send you a random picture of someone that (laughs) made a thirst trap. All right, Paul, what's our next episode? Uh, I'm so fucking excited because Pablo and I are in a few hours going to go see it together. Yay! We're going to do Scream 6. Ah, it's really good. I'm so jealous. You'll be with us it's, in spirit, Alex. Yes. It's taken yes. everything in me to not like see, click on the spoiler stuff, like all the, like it, and I'm so excited. You got to stay, stay away so from excited. that stuff. Oh. Yeah. But yeah. No. Thank you listeners so much for, for listening to this. Alex. Thank you so much for coming Thank back. Uh, we will absolutely have you back. And next time we'll have you back, we won't do such a depressing movie. No, it's fine. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure every time. I can't wait to hear what you do next. Thank you. All right. Stay scared. Stay safe. And maybe get a little gay. No one's going to buy a gay if they, yep, they are. talk like that. <laughs> I'm Paul. I'm Pablo. Bye. Bye. And I'm Alex. <laughs> 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 <laughs>